I resemble that remark. Yeah. I, I, I was trying to get that out also. I resemble that remark. Uh, Anyways, all right. It's not, it's not fair. Yeah, David, David. So listen, David, you're the one that, that called our attention to this father and son flying around the world thing. What, you think this is... No... <laughs> Is there any way that this could not turn into a disaster? This is what I want to know. Oh, yeah. Lots of ways. Lots of ways. I mean, the, you know, the easiest way would be for them to just get around the world, you know, uh, no drama, no hassle, and succeed. Um, and they could, do, they could go about that and have that happen. And when they got home, they would both have had the experiences of a lifetime and, and a bonding opportunity like nothing so it, else. Explain or they to us could what this... come back and be just totally intolerable of one, uh, intolerant of one another, and wish to never see the other again for in, in, until at least social security. So there, there's a flying to Oshkosh with Jeb joke in there someplace, but I'm going to resist. <laughs> um, wait, 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 back up. Why? Why would flying to Jeb, flying with Jeb to Oshkosh, be even remotely considered? part of a joke <laughs> david t- explain to me what this story is so the, this father and son are like have did they build this airplane or they just they 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 something about somebody decided he wanted to do this so first he had to get a pilot's license tell us the story this is from the ramona california home journal uh it's a it's a award-winning news magazine serving ramona and julianne california i knew a woman by the name of ramona once and uh, back at early in May, uh, they did a little feature about a gentleman, Stephen Armstrong, and how he used to bicycle to an airport to watch airplanes take off and land. An hour and a half each way. Uh, he got his license, uh, started learning to fly. Now he's working on building an airplane that in 2012 he plans to fulfill, use to fulfill a lifelong dream of traveling to the five continents touching down in 29 countries, 96 cities, across a route of about 35,000 miles, and do it with his 12-year-old son in a two-seat single engine that they're, they're building right now. God bless him, but wow. Hey, in an age when we've seen parents let very seasoned and... Uh, you know, unusually mature teenagers tackle sailing a boat around the world. Yeah, well, yeah, wow on that one, too. But, yeah, go ahead. Uh, you know, my dad and son together flying a small airplane around the world, which is, you know, not unheard of, but still pretty damn rare nonetheless. Uh, you know, I'd see it as eminently doable. It's a matter of willpower, time, and resources. Yeah, my sense is, not to not to diminish the aviation accomplishment of flying navigating all around the world in an airplane but it's always struck me whenever you hear about people doing this kind of thing it strikes me that the real accomplishment is navigating all the bureaucracies around the world i, I mean, would i would disagree with that a bit you know no. there are some places you know over on the other side of the earth from us here in the states where the paperwork is just astounding you know to try and you know if you can't just 
I mean, we think it's bad that you have to do whatever you, you, you have to do you to go to Canada. You don't have to go that far for that. You only have to go to Canada or Mexico. Yeah, but it, by uh, comparison to trying to fly, you know, through China or fly across, I don't know what, Turkey or I forget what this, but there are some countries over there as you get closer to Asia and then into Asia where so this, the paperwork, you know, you hear about these stories about guys who have been, you know, mostly guys, but people who have been uh, doing this kind of thing and. Sure, and you hear stories about people that make it all the way around the world with only the weather a hindrance because they plan a route that, by and large, avoids those trouble spots. Yeah, but at the trade-off of spending an awful lot of time over the ocean, right? It was What's his name? The New Zealand guy who was really cool in his name. I'm forgetting his name now. What was his name? Um, Dude, if you're, if you're leaving New Zealand to go anywhere, you're spending a lot of time on the ocean. <laughs> a lot of time over water. <laughs> well, so I guess that's true. That's I'm, works, I'm sorry. Yeah. End of story. <laughs> I guess yeah. that's true. I mean, there is no way out Australia. of New Zealand without a lot of water. Yeah. You, can, you can fly over to Australia, but eventually you're going to have to cross some water if you okay. want to get anywhere else. All right. And how far is it from New Zealand Bad to Australia over like. water? Yeah. It's a long damn way. Yeah, yeah. I I interviewed not, a couple of guys. Mich- go ahead, Jeb. I said it's not Lake Michigan. Yeah, tell me Ooh. about it. Right. Yeah, there you go. Um, uh, uh, way back in the early days of my doing the around the field column for Air Venture Today, I interviewed a couple of guys, and you know, I take their story at face value. I believe them. I'm just gonna. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. They were from Australia, uh, and one of them had a bonanza, and they apparently were, you know, like hanging out one afternoon in late July and trying to figure out where they might go flying. And they said, you know, hey, mate, let's fly to Oshkosh. And they apparently climbed into this guy's bonanza and flew across. I think that was a King Air. I think I remember that. It was a King Air. I don't think it was a King Air. I think these two guys were, it was a bonanza, and they told all kinds of outrageous stories about the fuel system that they cobbled together. I mean, they basically went to the airport by way of the hardware store where they picked up some cans and uh, and cobbled together a fuel system so they'd have enough gas. I don't know. Every time I tell this story, I go, Jack, how gullible are you that you believe where, where, this story? Where did you, do you have a, a reference to this, a link or anything like that? I is might this, be able to find it. Is this, is this something you, you kind of woke up with one morning? No, 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 no. This was an around-the-field story that I wrote oh, okay. for Air Venture Today, and okay. uh, I, I might be able to find it, but uh, you guys talk about something for a few minutes, and I'll go <laughs> real, real quick. From Sydney, Australia to Auckland, New Zealand, and I believe that's pretty close to the shortest yeah. crossing, 1,338 miles, yeah. okay. 2,153 kilometers. Yeah. Uh, my Comanche wouldn't do it on standard fuel. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, maybe with you know a, a, a hurricane tailwind, but yeah. barring yeah. that. Uh, the Deb would do that um, with the tip tanks on it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I found it, believe it or not. Um, no one's more surprised than me. Here it is. Uh, this is from uh, 1998, all right? Oh, okay. uh, it, it was actually in the newspaper of July 29th, 1998. I'll be uh, back in a second. The he- what, you don't want to hear my story? I, I guess not. I, I, I Just cut him off. No, 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 no. Chances are there's a tornado bearing down on his house. Let's oh, give him a second. He'll come back, or not. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry yeah. about that, guys. That That's was... okay. Any, anyway, so these guys flying around the world together, it's eminently doable. Yeah, but listen, people so here... do it every year. There's even, you know, organized tours by four higher companies 
that that you know they take on the heavy lifting of the paperwork. Yeah, here we. I found the story. It's all of five paragraphs. Let me read it to you here. Uh, the headline is, "Hey mate, let's go to Oshkosh." John Murray had been thinking about it for a few years, so finally this year he and Kevin Green jumped into John's Bonanza F33 Alpha in Moree or Moray or M O R E E, New South Wales, Australia, and flew to Oshkosh. They put Maury. Maury, okay. They Maury. put they put two 77-gallon tanks in place of the back seats and headed off through New Guinea, the Marshall Islands, Hawaii, California, and on to Oshkosh. In, New, in New Guinea, uh, back at the time, there was a the, one of the big news items. I'm this is as an aside, I should say there was a big tidal wave in New Guinea just prior to Oshkosh this particular year. Uh, back to the story. In New Guinea, they missed the recent tidal waves by a day. All right, and in Hawaii, they calculated that the headwinds would run them out of gas before reaching the mainland. So. They they went to a hardware store and bought three five-gallon cans and two hand pumps. <laughs> one, as a, one as a backup, just in case, one of them said. Uh, they filled them with gas and headed out. No worries, mate. John and Kevin are ag pilots back home. They spray cotton fields at night. Ironically, Kevin has a, a reser- had a reservation to come to Oshkosh 98 on the Oshkosh Express 747, but John made him a better offer. So, flying 53 hours... 5,513 nautical miles and 3,140 liters of fuel later. Welcome to Oshkosh. So, uh, I don't know. They, they had enough detail in this story that I kind of believe it, but then every time I retell it, I go, come on, they, they were pulling your leg, you know. So, uh, no, it all sounds perfectly viable. Yeah, I think. You think? So, oh, yeah. Anyways, so dad and his kid are eventually going to fly around the world and. Uh, I guess yeah, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll we'll be watching for more about Stephen Armstrong and 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 his son, uh, whose name I can't seem to find here. Uh, no. Anyways, while you're looking for the son's name, I'm going to oh, say. Oh, and they're and they're doing this to raise money for cancer. Oh well, uh, that's can, cancer to help cancer patients. Yes. not Fund research. So uh, Charlie is the son. He's got an aptitude for geometry. And is interested in mythology, and he's about to become a legend himself if he and his father pull those off. Absolutely, so, flying for the cure is the flying for the cure dot org. That's all hyphenated. Uh, you can find more about them there, and if you want to kick them a few liters of gas, I'm sure they wouldn't mind. Yeah. And on that note, welcome, folks, to episode 237 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise That's yeah right. this is this is the best seat in the house That's right. we got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got now. Sky riders they, now. They, they, does that say you can't i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> and you're in sight clear land turkey special ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and alpha we're recording this episode on Tuesday evening, May 24th, 2011, and joining me here in the virtual hangar, my two good friends. First of all, Jeb Burnside's out there talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. Are you How st- you doing? Oh, right? you are still there. You scared me. No, you, the, you, you kind of fuzzed out right, right in there somewhere. The NSA was changing a hard drive. Is that what it was? Okay, yeah. Well, you're sounding just fine tonight, actually, better than you've sounded in a few weeks. So, yeah, uh, the, the, the audio coming this way isn't as good. Oh, uh, sorry about that. I but, I anyways, uh, so, I'm good. Yeah. Um, um, kind of talk, t- uh, excuse me, kind of took the day off mm-hmm. and uh, just been in relaxing today. I kind of earned it. 
and um, uh, looking forward to chatting with you folks for the next hour or so. And uh, life's good. Yeah, sounds good. And also out there is Dave Higdon joining us from uh, uh, scary weather, Wichita, Kansas. David, you were telling us earlier that it's getting pretty dark. How, what's the latest? Well, it's rained, it's boomed, uh, and it's lightened up. Uh, and the line that we're on, this storm runs from up uh, in Nebraska all the way down to uh, north Texas. And it was actually created live we could see it on tv tornadoes in oklahoma so we, we we're, we're keeping our eyes on on that on a uh, weather map on another screen and saying refresh uh other than that we're doing finer and frog hair not a day i'd want to go flying right now yeah no it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like it i'm jack hodgson and i'm talking to you from high atop lookout point in uh well see my thunderstorm now pales by comparison to yours but uh, we had a pretty good thunderstorm here about a half an hour ago so uh rain like crazy but now it's just calm and nice and uh brightening does, up again. does anyone be, anyone other than me find it odd that i'm the one in florida and we haven't had rain here in like two weeks yeah well that's the way it was in california what is it? It's May. When I was in California, it would stop raining in the middle of April and not rain again till October. Period. Not a drop. Well, that's not what it does here. But no, and just, you're getting to the time it, of year where it's going to yeah. rain every day, yeah. right? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So, anyways, what's going on in the world these days? It's, M-N- yeah. Silva. What's the matter, David? Nothing. I'm just saying, Ohio Silva. On we go. On we go. On we go. Hey, listen, I went to... Uh, uh, swung by uh, one of the local uh, uh, grassroots airfields over the weekend, Hampton uh, Airfield in uh, Northampton, New Hampshire. Held oh, it's doing day. International Learn to Fly Day? Uh, was it International Learn to Fly Day on, on Saturday? It, it I, was. I didn't know that. I'm, sorry, I'm embarrassed that and, I didn't and, know and that. We, and we should be embarrassed that we didn't talk it up more. Yeah, we absolutely should be. Um, yeah. But the, you, you can take Young Eagles flying on more than just International Learn to Fly Day. But, this uh, is also true. Um, but, but what I did do on Saturday was go to the Hampton Airfield uh, flea market, which they do every year, and uh, um, sort of a miniature version of the uh, Oshkosh and Sun and Fun uh, uh, fly markets. Where uh, you know people just bring in their stuff and uh, had a good old day hanging out at the air air uh, the airfield airport and uh, watching the airplanes fly. Um, they have a beautiful old old. They have a number of biplanes there, but they've got one in particular they give rides in. Um, and uh, it was flying uh, you know throughout the day and there were a bunch of this must be like five Cubs on that field. It's really cool. So we were watching the Cubs fly and uh, and 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 you know pawing through all the all the stuff at the at the flea market was kind of cool. Now that I'm a hardware guy, see, I really get my hands on that stuff. I go in there and I, you know, I go, that's a carburetor. Did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. In any see, event. the carburetors carburate and the generator generates and the pistons do what? Yeah. So uh, um, I made two purchases at the flea market. Um, one a little frivolous, but uh, um, some guy was uh, one of these guys had a bunch of things laid out on the blanket in front of his car, you know the tailgate of his car, uh, and one of the items was a chainsaw, a small uh, a fourteen inch blade chainsaw. Um, and he said, "I said, does it run?" And he says, "He says, well, it kind of runs. He says it starts, but then when you give it a little gas, it stalls." And I said, "Well, okay, how much?" Twenty. He says, twenty five dollars. And so I wandered back about a half an hour later and offered him twenty, and he he gave it to me. So I, I have a chainsaw that doesn't really run. Um, do, but do you? <laughs> often buy things 
from people selling them off the back of their car? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I have a chainsaw now that uh, I'm going to try. Well, and... you have a chainsaw that sort of runs that you sort of needed. But yeah, well. Not exactly. Yeah, well, I live in the woods. You never can have too many chainsaws. And, uh, <laughs> um, and I'm going to take it apart and fix it. Or at the very least, I'm going to take it apart. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I, there's, not a, there's not an aircraft maintenance shop that I think could be complete without at least one chainsaw. So. Yeah. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, absolutely. Uh, Sometimes you just got to say, what the heck? <laughs> so I got my chainsaw. And uh, for 20 bucks, well, how, how can I lose, right? You know, I'll have fun taking it apart, and I'll learn a little bit more about uh, taking things apart. And that'll that be reminds good. me of the, the, the story that Lee... Uh, Stike leather, uh, my mechanic tells about the hole saw. Would that be the satanic mechanic? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The man, the satanic mechanic. That's right. And he uh, uh, he says he what? Tell, hole saw? He, tell, he tells a story about so he's working on a, a mutual friend's plane. Uh, one of the first times he'd worked on it, and there was a, a bolt that he was trying to get to, a landing gear associated uh, system, and he was trying to get to this bolt, and it was just hard to get to, and but it was like, you know, at the bottom of the fuselage. And Lee says, look, you know, uh, let's take the day off. Tomorrow I'll come back with a hole saw, and I'll just, you know, cut a hole in the bottom of the skin and, um, you know, get to that bolt, and then we'll get it all squared away, and we'll just get some white duct tape and cover the hole. And I won't mention the friend's <laughs> name. The friend's name was like, you know, why don't you wait till I get here in the morning? Uh, before before we do that, and, and Lee just started laughing his ass off. Um, of course, we, no one would do anything like that. But the whole the whole thing was just so preposterous that you know <laughs> you, you had to you had had to just kind of okay sure whatever you want to do. <laughs> but, uh, so, anyway. um, what was I talking about? Oh, so the so twenty dollar chainsaw. But here's the really cool treasure that I came across. Um, uh, sifting through a number of different vendors had boxes of books as they usually do with these kinds of things, and you almost never find anything really all that interesting. Um, but I came across. I was astounded to come across a first edition hardcover copy of Back's Seat: The Log of the Pasture of a Pasture Pilot by Gordon oh, Baxter. Cool. Oh, sh- yeah, yeah. This is. I actually have this book. I've had it for many, many years in paperback. Um, but uh, it's very cool to get uh, a hardcover with the original uh, dust cover with the color artwork on the cover. And uh, I mean, it's not a collectible, but it's just a really cool book. And I'm. What was the What was the publication date? Uh, let's see now. The copyright date is 1978. 1978. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. So uh, this is cool. I've been kind of jumping through it. Like I said, I've read the whole book a number of different times, so I've been kind of going through it, um, revisiting some of my favorite stories. And uh, uh, good stuff. The only thing that would make it more complete is if you could still get his autograph. Yeah, I know. That would be really cool. But, of course, that's not possible. You know what I was thinking would be kind of cool is to uh, bring it to Oshkosh this summer and attempt to collect the signatures um, uh, the autographs of all of the winners of the backseat trophy. Ooh. Uh, Ooh. I thought that Ooh, might be kind of, cool. yeah, that, 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 that's a nice idea. Yeah. So there's only been six or eight of us, them. Tell um, when you, when you sit down, I don't know if you've read it already or not, but when you do, there's an article he wrote about a skydiving cat. Skydiving cat. I know you've mentioned this before. Uh, There's an article he wrote about the skydiving cat. I, if it's in there, I would like to know that. Okay. All right. Let's see. I would definitely like to borrow that. I remember that. It, 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 it did an article in Glider Rider years ago about a hang gliding dog. 
Uh-huh. And somebody said, uh-huh. Are you guys trying to copy Gordon Baxter? And we were hang glider pilots. We did yeah. flying practice who's, magazine. Who is mean, Gordon Baxter? Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, uh, the table of contents doesn't have that much granularity, so it doesn't make any reference to anything like a, like a skydiving cat. But uh, uh, I'll, I'll keep an, I'll actually page through it and see if I can find that, because you've mentioned that in the past, and I'm curious to reread that story as well. So, so that was the treasure I found at the uh, Northampton Airfield uh, flea market this past weekend. All right. That, that, that's... that's yeah. Better than a chainsaw. Yeah. yeah it, it, well, I mean, you know, it depends on the chainsaw. Yeah. Hey, it's a cool chainsaw. I'm going to sure. make it work. It's going to be great. And it's going to be because I'm a hardware guy now. Um, <laughs> David, um, Vance Air Force Base. So yeah. You, you, you called our attention to uh, a web page uh, published by the Vance Air Force Base where they uh, uh, talk a lot about avoiding uh, mid-airs, always a good thing to avoid. And uh, um, tell us more about why, why you found this interesting. Well, Vance Air Force Base is down in Oklahoma. Uh, if you fly much around here, you've got to consider Vance Air, Air Force Base a neighbor. Uh, if you fly in cross-country... Uh, anywhere between 180 and 270 heading out of the Wichita VOR, you're going to come either across or in close proximity to one of their training routes because Vance Air Force Base trains 475 or so pilots a year in three different high-performance aircraft. They fly about a half a million missions and 95,000 hours doing this. And their training routes kind of spread out to the north and northeast, uh, not real hard east, and a little bit to the south, and a little bit to the northwest. And the aircraft that they're training pilots in are the T-6A Texan II. That's Raytheon Aircraft or or Hawker Beechcraft's uh, uh, turboprop trainer. Uh, They're still flying the Northrop T-38C Talon. And the Beach T-1A Jayhawk for tanker and transport pilots. For those of you not familiar, the T-1A is a missionized version of a beach jet. Now it's called the Hawker something or other. Uh, it's not very difficult to get crosswise on one of their routes on a VFR training mission out of Wichita. Uh, and for the rest of the world that may come cross-country through there, I thought it might be worth folks checking out as an example of an outstanding outreach effort by the Air Force Base to the GA pilots, particularly in the region, Oklahoma City, Wichita, Dodge City, Tulsa, uh, uh, folks that might frequent that airspace. But in general, uh, the Share the Air program, their mid-air collision avoidance, uh, they lay it out. They've got maps that show the routes. Uh, they talk about when they generally fly, when they don't. Of course, most of this stuff is available um, as information either through a NOTAM flight service or by calling their line to uh, check out the information. Uh, are, are you guys hot? What are you flying? What route? They even do a civilian fly-in uh, every couple of years. They'll be doing one in the fall of 2012. It's an open house. And civilian pilots like you, me, and Jack, we can all fly in there. Yeah. Cool. And meet with the folks, check it out. But it's a great example of a safety outreach by 
folks that are aware of their place in the airspace system and their own responsibility to be good neighbors with the folks that may not be that aware of them because not all the Air Force bases are quite so hot with training traffic. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of my routes home to Indiana on a frequent basis took me south of Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri. But the preponderance of traffic out of Whiteman Air Force Base was uh, F-16s and B-2 bombers, and their training routes were much more diverse. I mean, they weren't out in backs. They were like, well, today's training mission is going to take us over the Middle East and then back again, nonstop. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like cross country. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting. Uh, Technically, it's not a cross country because you don't land at the other airport. Um, it's, a lo- <laughs> it's, a, it's a local flight. Well, that's an interesting interpretation of the uh, FARs. Okay, (laughs) yeah. So uh, we're going to have to think about that one a little bit. All right. Think about all you want. (laughs) And my hat's off to the advanced uh, uh, safety folks, uh, the flying training wing down there at the uh, 71st Flight Training Wing Safety Office uh, for, for doing this and making a big push to get the word out. Yeah, good stuff. It's pretty cool. I'm sorry, Jeb. I just can't let this go. So what you're telling me is, <laughs> go ahead, Jack. What you're telling me is that you know all those B-52 pilots who like take off from South Dakota and fly up to their I don't even know if they do this anymore. All right, but fly up to their fail-safe points and orbit a little bit and then come back. Don't get to log that as cross country. <laughs> I, I I don't know what the military rules are. I know I know what the FARs say. <laughs> you got to land. <laughs> and and you know, if you take off and you fly for 5, 6, 10, 12 hours and you come back and you land at your at the airport from which you took off, I'm not sure that's a cross country flight. So so what we need to do is the B52 needed to land at an airbase in Siberia and go out with his logbook into the shack and that say that might that might be carrying you think, something to an extreme. You think? You but, think? Uh, but you still get to log the time and all the air to air refueling hookups. Exactly. Exactly. It's just you know you take off at Barksdale, you come back to Barksdale, and and it's all instrument time because right. you do almost all of it above one eight zero. So right, and and plus you know you know if, if you're doing it right, you'll pull the hood over and and uh, uh, so the you know the blast the 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 uh, the light blast won't won't fry your eyeballs or anything like that. Yeah, well, that's and it's you go through what a sunrise and at least one sunset. Uh, so hey, what's what's up with that? There's yeah, no okay. issues here. All right, all right. And you works. got you got you know a coffee maker and you got a head and and six yeah, that's right. Other, you yeah, know, six or eight other people. Isn't that like and, the- and like the, like the joke about the tanker pilot and the and the F eighteen yeah, yeah. pilot having an argument one day and the F eighteen pilot starts doing maneuvers uh, you know that would just stop an air show crowd and it strikes uh-huh. and and and, and the, the the tanker pilot says well I, I'll show you something I know you can't do okay show me and about five minutes pass and then the F eighteen pilot finally says so what were you going to show me oh I'm sorry you didn't catch it I just went up and went to the head. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I thought you were going to make reference to the world's coolest survival kit that's on board. All well, I was going to say you get to pull out the survival kit yeah. and go through it, and and oh, you know you the, the condoms like and the gold pickin'. coins and yeah, right. And, you know, right. you got to speak it like Slim Pickens. That's right. Yeah. Shoot, yeah. shoot, I could have a pretty good weekend in Vegas with all this stuff. 
<laughs> All right. All right. We got to move on here. One pack of condoms, yeah. two dozen nylons, <laughs> one pack of playing cards, of, four cartons of cigarettes, 52 gold coins in American, 52,000 rubles, 500 one pounds. One miniature Bible. Okay. All right. Maybe it's just my this northern boy's ears, but you guys both do a really good slim pickings. I don't know. Um, anyways. It comes watching. It comes from watching the Dr. Strangelove way too many way times. Way too many times. Yeah, I, might, I might have to cue that up tonight. You know, it yeah. shouldn't surprise you. I have that on video. <laughs> <Did he> have- <laughs> <laughs> um, so, David. David, am I to understand? Yes, am I to understand, David, that uh, sometime in the last couple of days you were in the position of defending the progress of next gen? What the heck? Well, I was Whiskey, in the Tango Foxtrot. I was in the position of putting down snow blowing. Okay. Yes. Hang on. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. All right. Stop. 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 Yeah. Stop. 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 Who are you, and what have you done with David? <laughs> <laughs> David, what was the circumstances under which you found yourself in a position to defend the progress of Next Gen? Well, I was in the company of some fellow licensed aviators, uh, and I really can't go into any more detail than that except to say that adult beverages were part of the ritual. I understand. Yeah. I personally am shocked. And, you know, the subject came up, and I listened to somebody that sounded like they had been swallowing too much airline Kool-Aid. Nothing's coming of it. Nothing's going to come of it. The FAA can never do anything right. Everything, you know, nothing's improved. Nothing's changed. I flew around the other day. I've been flying it the same way 20 years. I said, do you have a WASP GPS? And he goes, what? <laughs> I said, do you have a WASP GPS? You know, there's an LPV approach into that place. You could have gotten in there that day on the LPV. But as it was, the back course localizer you're talking about, you couldn't get in there because it was above ends. But that airport has a, a, an LPV approach. You could fly with a WAS GPS. Oh, blowing snow. Yeah, okay, well, I've since sent the man the email that kind of confirms that that airport, that place has a better procedure than what he was used to flying, but he's not equipped to it because why would you want to go to all that trouble putting that equipment in there? Because it's not really useful in any useful way. And to which I kind of say, you know, uh, e said, well, eat stuff and die. Well, okay. I, I understand all that. And I don't disagree with that a bit, but I would distinguish, um, was, um, enhanced approaches, from next gen and or ADSB and or perhaps something else he might have been talking about. But we we didn't even get into ADSB okay. because ADSB is is not necessary for these improvements to be useful, and they're all part of the same larger picture effort to improve the air traffic system. Sure, uh, the ADSB is just a, a better way to surveil the aircraft, for lack of a better word. It's better than radar. It's going to be, unless they can invent a radar that can update itself about 100 times a minute, ADSB is going to do that better, which means they can close up uh, uh, separation standards a little bit, put more aircraft in the airspace. And that still won't do a damn thing about air runway acceptance rates at the airports. Right. Right. That's Thank you. Risk. Thank you. Thank you very much. That, you can that, put them, it, will you, still, it will still allow a lot of them to improve their in route times, even without ADSB. 
but because I, they can I, I would, buy I some would, of these routes in RNP re- required navigation performance uh, that will shorten up their routes and let them fly tighter standards that the non-equipped airplanes are not going to be allowed to fly. Jeb, ADSB well, notwithstanding. Jeb, go ahead. I, w- I would agree with a lot of that. Um, it, it, where it falls down is the in-route airspace isn't crowded. Uh, the only, yeah. the only. Let me. With, with one you're right. You're right. In route airspace qualifier, is not the issue. Yeah. No. Let Jeb go. Um, Jeb go. With, with one qualifier, and that's North Atlantic. Um, that's a crowded airspace, and I can see where um, some airborne collision avoidance outside of, of radar coverage would have some benefits, and I, I, I grok that. Uh, we we sort of kind of have that now with TCAS. Um, but having said all of that. Um, Yes, there are certain um, um, efficiencies that can be realized um, with ADSB in terminal airspace, but you still have the runway acceptance rate problem that that's, you cannot that, get past without right, building more game. pavement. Punch punchline: you got to have more pavement, and preferably at different airports. Um, there's no way around that. There is no physical way around that unless you're going to be landing them in tandem or something. Um, and, and, and until we solve that problem, we're always going to have delays. ADSB can help runway acceptance rates slightly. How much right. slightly? Quantify that. Oh, about 5 to 10% is the number Thank I'm hearing. Well, that's not you know, going to help it's very not much. A revolution. I think that's it, it, optimistic. And, and, but that's a big improvement. I mean, 5% would be a, a, a significant improvement at a lot of airports where you're going from 60 or 80 operations an hour to 66 to 70 an hour. Uh, that that's, that's, extra I think that's more hour. Than, I, think, I think that's more than the 5 or 10% you're talking about. But that's, well, that's also very optimistic. An hour, 3 an hour would be an improvement. Uh, of yeah, three, an, 3 an hour would be an improvement, but 3 an hour... Is is good weather VFR, and they put somebody on the crossing runway. You know, so, sixty three to sixty five. I mean, sixty sixty to sixty three movements an hour. Um, you know, in the, in the immortal words of Shania Twain, that don't impress me much. Well, you get down to where the separation standards are solely about the uh, vortex. You know, the vortex separation issue, and not about the surveillance mm-hmm. issue. Okay, and, talk and to me for a lot of about A three eighties and seven fives. Uh, improvement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jeb, you don't think you're going to be able to squeeze them closer together, even with ADSB? I think you still not have, Je- have David. David, let Jeb go. Jeb, go. Yeah, um, if they're in trail and it's, if they're close to the runway, they still have to have minimum separation. They still have to be off the runway before the next airplane lands. They da 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 da. And unless you change those rules, which are kind of sort of there for a reason, and if you change them or, 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 or whittle away at them, uh, I think you're also whittling away at, at some safety margins. So all, all, of, all of this is good. All of this, you know, I, I, I totally get the ADSB thing from, from a variety of standpoints, but I don't think quantum improvements in, in, in moving uh, people and moving uh, um, uh, equipment from one location to another is one of them. Okay. And this this That's wasn't an airline airport. airport. This wasn't an airline airport or an air transport aircraft. This was a GA aircraft uh-huh. going into a busy GA airport, where 
they they blew the ability to get in because they're obstinate about upgrading their equipment. I understand that. And this is a fire for higher operation who says, you know, it's going to cost me 1800 bucks to upgrade my, my, my brand something or other GPS receiver. It's like it's not even buying a new receiver. It's an upgrade. It, right. now, but why yeah. would I do that? Because you can't use it anywhere. And right. that's where we started the whole, but yeah. you can't. No, I, and, I, and I totally get that. But I would, I would again come back to um, a WAS approach is not ADSB, and And we're, we're really kind of talking apples and oranges there. Well, and, and this wasn't about ADSB. This was about whether next gen's components okay. well, are producing any. Okay, any, I, I get, I get that, I get that too. But but WAS is here and now. It's been in use. Uh, da 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 da. And uh, next gen is so much more than just WAS. Um, it is. It is, but it's a so, component of it. So I, I, to the whole argument. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Um, All right, David. We're not going to. We're not going to. We're not going to agree. Yeah. <laughs> this is one of those subjects. This is the subject, actually. This may be the only subject that I can get you guys to disagree on. Um, well, I, I, I kind of get my back up over categorical statements. Yeah. Nothing ever comes of this, or these people can never do anything right, or blah blah blah. When I can cite example after example of where that's not a true statement. So you set the do guys they do everything perfect. Do they do everything right on schedule? Do they every, everything like we'd like them? Not only no, but no. But <laughs> yeah, do they get some you. things right, and do they make some improvements, and do things get incrementally better uh, for folks, particularly down at our end of it, because of some of this? Categorically, yes. Okay. And the refusal to acknowledge that kind of sends me up the wall. All right. Moving on. Moving yeah, we on. We don't want David climbing on any wall. No, 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 no. Ugly. Always ugly. Uh, and it leaves marks in the plaster. Yeah, I know. Uh, so I came across this story. This is an AP story. I found it on Yahoo News. Um, the head of the Air Traffic Controllers Union apparently testified before uh, some form of Congress. Um <laughs> And he says, I'm sorry, Jeb's already laughing. Um, he's and uh, what and and so and and it probably and it seems like he's he's testifying about all the little controller snafus we had over the last couple months, and he's pointing the finger at all of the trainees that are in the system. Uh, Not just. Not just. Yeah, well, but but this is the story is 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 emphasizing that uh, head of the air yeah, traffic controllers that's, that's union. Bad. Says a large increase in new controllers who need on-the-job training is partly responsible for a surge in errors that brings planes too close together. The thing I thought found most interesting about this little four-paragraph story was that he said that let's see where's the line here. Um, he said he said most of the recent 53% increase in errors is due to greater use of new technology that can spot previously undetectable instances of planes violating minimum separation distances. He's saying the pilot the, the controllers have been been kind of having these little spacing problems all along, but we never realized it because we didn't have the gear to to, to recognize it. No comment on that. Sounds like a next gen improvement to me. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, I brought it up. <laughs> or 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 a or a uh, you know version twelve dot zero of the snitch patch. Of oh, the, yeah, the snitch patch. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see now. There it's hasn't not the first time controller training has been a screen on 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 the air, on, on the ability of the 
the, the, the system to no. manage air traffic effectively. We no. saw this in the, in the 80s when the FAA was in the process of replacing thousands of controllers fired because of the, the strike. Uh, boy, talk about some burdens and some mistakes and sure. traffic controls. We've never seen anything like that since, thankfully. Yeah. No, we haven't. Yeah. You guys, um, I wasn't flying back in those days. Were you guys both flying during those days? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I had just got my instrument writing. And um, people won't remember this, but there was something called the GAR, G-A-R, General Aviation Reservation Program. Yeah, I remember it. And it was basically the the entire U.S. airspace was an STMP, um, a uh, uh, special traffic management program. You still have those today. You you have those going IFR into Oshkosh, for example, or, or some of the other big air shows. Or other big events like the Indianapolis 500 or a NASCAR race or something like that, um, because of the acceptance rates, because of the uh, here we go again, because of the acceptance rates and because of the the congested airspace and too much traffic, they meter uh, IFR arrivals. VFR can come, pretty much come and go as you want, subject to traffic, but the IFR arrivals are subject to getting a reservation, and the same thing was in place across the U.S. In at least eighty one and probably eight much of eighty two um, I had just got my instrument rating in in um, uh, early eighty one and um, it was it was quite the deal we had to make we had a call on the phone um, like an hour i mean i 'm sorry a day ahead of your uh, proposed departure and and get a reservation and get a code and then it had to be in your flight plan and that was because there weren 't enough controllers. And that, of course, applied to, to Part 91 GA. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the way it was. What, what was it? What was it like in more, you know, kind of VFR operations? I, I heard stories. Again, I used to fly a lot out of Palo Alto, and people told me the old timers told me stories about. <laughs> I just back in a in a backhanded kind of way called you guys old timers. Um, old timers told me stories about how uh, when the controllers were all fired, one of the uh, bits of fallout was that Palo Alto Tower. Um, closed temporarily and it became an uncontrolled strip um did you guys encounter anything like that what was that like were were there genuine safety issues or did we just all make adjustments i don't recall any outright tower closures now i was i was living and flying in the dc area at the time uh this was um before a manassas virginia where i used to base had a control tower and B, back when dulles international was the practice approach capital of the world because it had no traffic Okay, mm-hmm. Dulles was not going to be understaffed because they still had Concord operations. Um, they still had a lot of VIP operations. Well, and so it was still were, a federal were, airport. It was still a federal airport, and they weren't going to be understaffed. So I never really noticed. I, I flew in and out of Dulles a lot during that time frame as well as Manassas. Manassas was a nothing burger uh, because it was, it was uncontrolled, non-towered. Some would say it's non-towered now. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, <clears throat> Um, the problem wasn't so much the, I, I just don't know of any, any, uh, tower closures in that area. The problem wasn't so much about, uh, terminal airspace though, as it was in root airspace. Yeah. Okay. Another thing they had going on too, was they popularized, they formalized and popularized the tower in route, uh, clearance, the tech, uh, routes, they call them, where if you were going, say from DC to Boston, 
if you flew certain routes at certain or at or below certain altitudes, you were completely handled by approach control facilities instead of center airspace. And those routes and at those altitudes were were either exempt from um, the General Aviation Reservation Program and or um, pretty much guaranteed to to not have any delays and get the route you filed for. Again, those were, were different times, but um, I remember those days very well. Mm, yeah. There's been, uh, you know, we've been following the Air France 447 story a lot yeah, um, yeah. over time. And uh, I think we talked about it last episode, the fact that they had recovered the data um, and they were beginning to analyze the data. In the past week, there have been a number of stories where, um, I'm going to put finger quotes here. Analysis from the recorders is, <laughs> is starting to trickle out. And uh, I guess my question for you guys, and particularly for Jeb, who's been following this, is uh, should we be paying attention to these reports yet, or should we be sitting tight? Um, it, the, the reports are interesting from the standpoint of kind of watching this from 30,000 feet, mm-hmm. uh, watching the, the various parties who have something to gain or lose uh, uh, play with this information. Um, but that's from a standpoint of aviation safety. It, it really isn't all that interesting. Um, I've seen, um, you know, a headline. You know, um, four four seven data exonerates Airbus. Well, it's way early for any conclusion like that. Right. And, right. and basically, what they were writing this, whoever was writing this article, was writing it based on anonymous sources from uh, um, anonymity. You know, uh, it, basically, it's it's Airbus spin. Um, at the same time, I, you see uh, stories where you know pilot error ruled out or something like that, and um, so it's it's, it's competing uh, uh, storylines, uh, neither one of which are going to win out here. Um, there was a story I saw in the last you know twenty four thirty six hours um, about the cockpit audio um, showed the captain rushing into the cockpit. Mm-hmm. And giving instructions, right? The captain supposedly having been on rest somewhere outside of the cockpit, and rushing into the cockpit and being picked up on the CVR recording, um, saying "Do this, do that, do the other thing" or something. Now, I find that highly suspect. Really? Why? Um, I don't think that he would have had time. Plus, his body was found. And I think one other and one other crew member, a flight attendant's body was found. The cockpit crew's bodies were not found. It's unlikely um, that if he was in the cockpit, um, his body would not have been found with the pilot and the co-pilot. Well, I, I've thought about that, and the one thing that I that I keep coming back to is if he rushed into the cockpit and started shouting instructions. Uh-huh. And there's two officers in 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 the pilot in you know PIC and first officer seats belted in, and he's not. Uh huh. The airplane breaks up. You know, I understand where you're going. Sink with but, the sink with the cockpit, and he floats free somehow. But uh, I, I just I just don't think that. Um, I I just don't think a there's no reason there's no nothing to say that he couldn't have belted himself into the jump seat. B. Uh, I think that everything happened so fast. I think the airplane was probably in a spin or a spiral, and the G forces were building. I just don't know that he would have been able to get to the cockpit. Mm-hmm. 
No, and, whole, and I've wondered whether he wasn't on a PA system from someplace else. That's, that's know, another that's very, that's right. That's another very good point. Um, so I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm treating all of this stuff with a grain of salt and, yeah. and not, a, not a small amount of amusement until the official um, French government um, safety uh, um, uh, agency report, the, the BEA report as it's called, um, comes out talking and with details and with with uh, you know transcripts and the whole nine yards and the whole thing is is until that until that happens I'm I'm not believing anything that comes out yeah okay yeah. Well, well, the, an aircraft like that at that altitude it could can be so close to so many edges at one time well yes and no um, um I think the 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 airspeed range between stall and, and mock buffet at that altitude in that airplane is like 30, 40 knots. Um, so I, I, I don't know how close to, 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 um, you know, disaster. Yeah, I don't, at I don't think extreme. it's as tight as it. I don't think it's, it's, it's not, it's not as tight as taking a, you know, an early Lear up to four or five or something. No. Um, but, um, Clearly, you know, something, quote, bad, unquote, happened, and uh, we need to figure out what it was and what yeah. led up to it. Yeah. I, don't, well, just, I don't think just, it's – at the end of the day – let me finish and I'll let you talk. Sure. I, at the end of the day, I don't think any single um, thing is, having, is going to have been found at fault. Um, I, I think I it's totally going to be agree. a combination of pitot tubes and an incorrect reaction from the flight deck – uh, maybe some some logic uh, foo bars within the uh, um, automation on the airplane, and um, uh, stuff happens, guys. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I'm, we need to figure out what in. the sequence was, and we need to figure out what what uh, what failed, and 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 fix the failures and move on. Yeah, David, what are you going to say, and then we'll move on. Well, that's good. I was going to say it could be nothing more complicated than a decision that was made based on the best information available at the sure. time. And turned out to be in error, yeah. Because yeah. conditions conspired to be different than what they expected when they were where they were, and that kind of weather can create velocity changes way bigger than the gap between stall speed and and, and engine stall, for example, compressor right. stall, uh, very quickly and very easily and have nothing to do with anybody else's handling of the aircraft, but just because they're in air that is so bloody rough mm -hmm. that you can get those kind of velocity shifts in very short order. Uh, and with an aircraft plane going that fast, that high up, with that kind of, that, that magnitude of velocity changes going on, that's a good day to be wishing you were on the ground. Right. I mean, I, I can sit here and tell you exactly what the BEA report is going to say, or pretty much what it's going to say, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, what I am going to say is that um, there are probably, most likely, a combination of factors uh, that, that uh, through a combination of, of errors and uh, um, events kind of designed into uh, the, the various institutions that had that airplane aloft that night, um, you you found yourself um, uh, spiraling down to the water without much of a of a of a of a, of a chance for recovery. Yeah, and uh, stuff happens. Yeah, let's leave it at that. We're certainly going to talk about this more when we get better data because it's pretty fascinating.
Uh, David, you came across something uh, that, that took you back to the old days, huh? It <laughs> reminded you of your Sensor 510 wing, huh? Oh, that one. Yeah. It was a uh, video from the Duxford Air Show in England that showed a uh, P-51D Mustang doing a, a, a flight routine with a Supermarine Spitfire. They flew in such close proximity for so long on this that it was an opportunity to really marvel at the fabulous performance of these two airplanes who basically shared a power plant but with dramatically different wing platforms. Mm -hmm. And the Sensor 510, my personal favorite among the hang gliders I got to fly over the years, uh, I've still got an obsolete you know, probably corroded one in storage here at the house. Uh, the elliptical wing of the Supermarine Spitfire was so similar to the elliptical wing of the sensor. Now, it just kind of triggered. I wonder where, you know, I wonder if there's anything to those guys now. And it was with, you know, a small sense of shock and amazement that I found that Seed Wings Company the, the and Bob Trampano, the designer and builder of the sensor hang gliders, Still alive, well, and doing business in limited production out in California like they always were. And it was kind of like, whoa, flashback. If I was to be living, if, if, if I could find a place to tow up around here, that would be the wing I would buy to do it. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. it, it. It stays up on a breath. It really does. What, what, is it just because it has a magical wing shape or what, 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 why is it better? The the magical wing shape is part of it. The design that uh, gives the wing a flexible wing tip, much like soaring birds have, uh, is part of it. Uh, very high aspect ratio, very wide wow. nose angle. Uh, if you think about the early Regalo gliders, they had about a 90-degree nose angle. This has about a 135-degree nose angle. Uh, and an aspect ratio that's up around 8 to 1. Uh, the airfoil is 93% double surface, which is about as much as you can get on a uh, Regalo flexible wing hang glider. Uh, it's got battens out the wazoo uh, to make sure the wing holds its shape. And a variable geometry system, so you can actually change the washout and the tension on the sail between a setting that favors easy steering and a setting that faces that favors lousy steering, but a great straight-ahead glide ratio. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And, and there's the sink rate. The plan form of the wing, the airfoil, and the flexible dips all lent themselves to a, a, an extraordinarily good minimum sink rate and the ability to turn uh, almost flat without the sink rate increasing dramatically in the turn. And I'm talking about something that's in along the lines of a red-tail hawk. Mm-hmm, yeah. It, it never ceases to amaze me how much goes into designing a good wing. I, I you know, it's, it's tempting for a newcomer or someone not informed to just think of a wing as being kind of having this cord shape and, you know, that's it, you know, and, and, then, and then you... I used to go to the talks um, at uh, Air Venture, um, where John Ronce would uh, would oh, uh, be yeah. part of the panel, 
and uh, and you know, and just listening. And, and he wasn't even talking about wing design, but just kind of casually talking about ver- the things that John Ron's always used to talk about. Um, you know, you got the you, you started started to get the feeling that there was a lot more to wing design. I mean, the Wright brothers figured that out way back when that there was a more, lot more to wing design than anybody realized. But uh, you know, the, the and, it, and it evolves still. And, and whether you're talking a high performance hang glider or uh, a high end business jet. If you looked up some of the today's most fuel-efficient, high-speed business jets and looked head-on or tail-on at their wing profiles, they are an amazing combination of compound curves, complex airfoils, and a blending where that all changes from root to wingtip. And it's all just worked up to create this, you know, this fabulous fuel efficiency at really high speed and high altitude, but at the same time still provide for reasonable landing speeds and distances when you're down low and slow. Uh, so there's like not a straight line or, or, or straight edge in the, in the whole wing. And the washout changes from root to tip. Uh, the camber changes. They taper. Uh, the foil shape actually changes. They get thinner at the tips. Uh, the guys that come up with this are, you know, software engineers got nothing on what these guys did. Yeah. 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 It's, no, I, agree. I agree. It's cool stuff. I was just, it got me thinking about John Ron. So where is John Ron's these days? Have anybody heard from me? I used to hear him talk every year at Oshkosh, and I haven't heard him in quite some time. I'm trying to figure out what his situation is these days. Um, a Google search produces a bunch of things. Anyways, I'm getting off the subject here. Um, <laughs> oh, that never happens on this show. Yeah, right. No, that's cool yeah, though. I'm shocked, shocked. It's cool though to hear about your uh, your. You know, I love hearing your old stories about the simple flying that you used to do with the uh, the ultralights and the hang gliders. That's pretty cool stuff. So thanks for thanks. Thanks. Uh, it, it, the becoming competent enough to soar something uh, as challenging as a sensor 510 could be because for all of its attributes it was not the easiest wing in production to dial into uh and it had some landing characteristics that were good preparation for flying moonies and comanches that is you could be too fast you could be drastically too slow and still fly but just blow the landing terribly because you came in too slow, didn't have an energy for a flare. If you came in too fast, oh, you'd eat up 100% more runway landing field than you needed because of how well the wing performed in ground effect. But if you could learn to manage the speed in about a four or five knot window as you rolled out of that last turn and got into ground effect, you could put that puppy within hula hoop distance of the target every time. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. But you could you could you, screw around and be sloppy. You can do that with a Mooney still today, but you might not be able to use the airplane again. Yeah, I know. Once. Well, that's, that's true. <laughs> Once. Uh, let's see now. Reaching the end of our allotted time here, why don't you, uh, each of you pick one story from the remaining uh, items on the list, not counting shout-outs. Uh, I'm not going to use one from the remaining list. I'm going to use something else that okay. happened. Well, tell me what happened. Um, this is the San Francisco Chronicle uh-huh. headline, headline, New York City jury, plane maker not at fault in Lytle crash. 
This is a, a, a wow. jury, tri- jury trial handed down this afternoon in Manhattan. Um, Cirrus Design has not has been found not liable by a jury. By a jury in a trial, uh, a jury. Um, um, Lytle's wife and the wife of his flight instructor sued Cirrus Design, alleging uh, binding flight controls. And the jury found uh, Cirrus Design not liable. Um, this was like um, $43.5 million lawsuit on its face. Da 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 da. This is Corey Lytle, was the Yankees pitcher, who he and his instructor were out in the SR 20. Uh, flying um, the East River, and um, were trying to turn around. And instead of turning around over the East River, they smacked into a uh, a, uh, a skyrise building adjacent to the river and killed themselves and took out most of the apartment at the, you know, that they hit at the same time. Um, this was in um, 2006, I believe. Yeah, yeah, October 2006. This was right after we started the podcast. This was, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and again, that's this. this uh, uh, um, jury decision came down this afternoon. That's great. So that's like practic. That's two great decisions for Cirrus. Like in three weeks, right? They uh, yeah. They won another one of these just the what other was day. The other one? Oh yeah, that's right. They did um, about training. Um, yeah, we talked about yeah. that last week. And, yeah, uh, the, the, yeah. The company's the company's duty to train. Yeah, um, um, yeah. I, I, now would be a good time, for, you know, for for Cirrus's management and or legal team to go buy a lottery ticket. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, it, 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 that's the truth. Well, congratulations to yeah. Cirrus. You know, uh, not taking away from the tragedy of the whole thing. Uh, I mean, it's tragic when anybody dies in a GA airplane crash. It's particularly tragic when they die because of a of a what appears to be a simple judgment mistake. Right. Uh, and and that's what separates the long term pilots from the folks that get scared and get out because you. You make smaller judgment mistakes that you learn from, and then you don't make bigger ones downstream. Uh, this never seemed like an issue with the airplane to me, but no, it never it was. Doesn't I, mean, that doesn't mean a jury can't be swayed by that's yeah. True. yeah, or feels feel sorry for somebody or, right. or whatever. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, uh, well, that's um, good news. That's good news. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, common sense. What a concept. Yeah, what a deal. Yeah, David, it's, which one do you want to talk about? Oh. Uh, I'm going to talk about the Airport Appreciation Day of my old uh, CAP. I mistyped here. I said my old haunt from my CAF days. It was CAP days. Okay. When I was a kid in high school, we did our summer routine. It was a week-long encampment at Friedman Field in Seymour, Indiana. And uh, the Seymour uh, Tribune had a little piece recently about Airport Appreciation Day, uh, some young Eagle flights, people getting introduced to aviation. Uh, there was a training base during World War II, like so many of the airports that we are able to use and enjoy today. Started life out of a necessity. It's had a great life as a different kind of necessity. Friedman Field's one of them. And I think every airport ought to have two or three airport appreciation <laughs> events a year just to remind people of all the stuff that comes from having a GA airport available to them. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, yeah. I, I've been saying all along we need to do have more and more activities for everybody at airports. Airports should be a place to hang out with. There should be a country club at every airport. 
fire the TSA. Nothing if you're not buying a ticket. They don't have any business there. Yeah. Send them. Yeah. Uh, shout outs. What do we got here? David, there's a couple here with your name on them. You want to do them both, or what do you want to do here? Uh, let's see. Where am I? Oh, I'll do one if you'll do the. I'll do the first one if you do the second. All right. All right. Tim Rogers, the executive director of the Salina Airport Authority, manager at Salina Airport. I've known Tim for years, since a couple of years after he came on board. Uh, very sharp cookie. He's done really well by that airport. Uh, it's got one of the longest runways in the United States, about 12,000 feet. So whatever you're flying, if you're going cross-country, SLN has enough runway to handle what you're flying. He won the uh, Distinguished Service Award from the American Association of Airport Executives for 2012. Uh, he'll get the presentation in January. Uh, but the selection is is well-deserved. Uh, the man's done a lot of stuff to help improve and expand on the activity at Salina. They built a new runway specifically called the K-State Runway, for example, uh, to help support the training that K-State Salina does in its aviation programs. Uh, you know, we've all heard of uh, Embry-Riddle and... Uh, uh, UND, uh, their their operations. Uh, K-State has quite a, uh, for pilots, mechanics, and, and aviation managers. So they built a runway there to help relieve the traffic off the big long one that's used by military and business jets. They even have a urban warfare training area on property at the airport that uh, uh, Tim was uh, uh, instrumental in helping develop uh they welcome in foreign combat pilots several times a year and train on the Smoky Hill Range, not too far away from Salina. Uh, so congratulations to Tim on the award. Well-deserved. Very cool. Very cool. I will do the second one. Jeb, do you have one you want to do? No. No. No? Stop. Okay. Uh, hang on a sec. I'll be back in five seconds. Don't go away. Don't go away. Talk among yourselves. Oh, what can we, what can we argue about in five seconds? I don't know. We need to talk about him, though. <laughs> if I had known that I was going to do this shout out, I would have been better prepared, but now I am. Um, so, in, uh, as we've talked mentioned before, uh, this year is the 100th anniversary of naval aviation. And so there's all sorts of uh, uh, celebrating uh, Navy, naval aviation going on at all sorts of fly ins around the country uh, this uh, year. Let me, let me stop you a second. Yeah. I want to know how it is. That my belly button can fly. Yeah, no, I knew somebody was going to do that. That's not what we're talking about. Oh, oh, uh, you mean the other one? Yes. And uh, one of the uh, ways of celebrating naval aviation uh, is this new book that I now have in my hands that I didn't have, and that's why I had to go away for a second. Um, this is a very cool book. This is a uh, I, I would sort you of got care- a copy of Fly Navy too. I, I do. Yes, oh. and, and it's Let's it's. Up. Very, very cool book, Fly Navy by Eric Hildebrandt. And uh, this is just a serious, serious. I, I want to. Part of me wants to call it a coffee table book, but that really doesn't do it justice because it's a really awesome uh, collection of of material about naval aviation. But there's a lot of incredible photography in here. Um, things that that Hildebrandt is a professional photographer. Apparently, David, you apparently know him, and I'm going to ask you about him in a second. But uh, 
He's taken a lot of these photos and he's collected some from other sources and there's a lot of text here uh, talking about the history of naval aviation and about specs and specifics about these aircraft and these processes and procedures. It's a terrific book. It's it's and it's boy, I don't, you know, they sent me this copy for free, disclose, you know, full disclosure. Um, so I don't know exactly how much it costs. Let's see what's it say here. It doesn't say, um, but well, however much it costs, I'm sure you get your money's worth because this is a serious book. All right, this is hefty, and there's a lot of great color photos and text and uh, stuff about naval aviation. And uh, if you're at all interested, uh, you should track down a copy of this book and 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 check it out. You'd enjoy it, I think. David, this Eric uh, uh, Hildebrandt is a professional photographer. You've had some some encounters with, or you've heard him talk, or what's the deal? I've heard him speak. Uh, uh, an organization called the International. Society of Aviation Photographers uh, brought Eric in to talk about some of his air-to-air work with uh, the, the military and for Grumman in particular. Uh, and he spent about two years concerted effort putting together new shots and the historical stuff that you're talking about to create this book, Fly Navy, the first century of naval aviation. Uh, I'm privileged to have a copy too. Uh, you know, well, I, where's mine? I spent I, sp- I spent most of a weekend pawing through it with cotton gloves because I didn't want to leave fingerprints on the pages. It's got about 400 photographs. Yeah, uh, and some of them are just remarkable. And I was fortunate enough to hear Eric uh, speak at one of the ISAP conferences, along with as I have with other great photographers like. Mike Pfizer and Paul Bowen, uh, and the effort that goes into some of these missions uh, where you have to shoot from inside a canopy bubble or behind some kind of transparency, and the stuff that you go through to make sure that no reflection shows up, there's no ghost images, no distortion uh, you know, wearing black gloves, taping over the white lettering that might say Canon or Nikon, uh, putting on a black ski mask mm-hmm. so that your face shows no reflection, putting foam rubber rings around the lens hoods so you can push them up next to the canopy without scratching the canopy, uh, and then the patience and stamina to do some of this work looking through the lens of a, a viewfinder of a camera in an airplane going several hundred miles an hour, bumping along, trying to photograph another airplane going several hundred miles an hour, bumping along, all this 3D motion stuff, and not blow your cookies. Yeah. That by itself is, is an accomplishment. Yeah. So, so that's off to Eric. It's, yeah. a, it's, it's a beautiful piece of work. Yeah. It's a great thing. And, Jeb, we'll see if we can find you a copy as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's enough. Time to stick a fork in this one. Dave Higdon is a, uh, as uh, if it's not already obvious, is an aviation photographer and also an aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, avbuyer.com, aea.net, uh, or, you know, roll the dice, do a Google search and pick something old to read. And Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, jeburnside.com, uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com, 
um, AEA.net sometimes, avweb.com sometimes, and sometimes you can just use the Google and, and ignore that stuff about the goats. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Big thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan and Royce Earle and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, you were going to say something? Live old, fly long, time spent. Flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. That means you get extra innings. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. That was a baseball reference, wasn't it? Sounded like it, yeah. Yeah, AMFFM. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.